I was just looking around, and if I could get one person in that balcony, one in that one, and one in that one, I think we'll have the room covered. Uh, I would need to remind you that Sunday morning we have a, a different schedule because of uh, so many of our key leaders being uh, at the STS uh, ministry area. And uh, so 10 o'clock Sunday morning, no life groups. Uh, 10 o'clock, uh, pastor will be back uh, from the trip to do that sermon. And so you be praying uh, for them as well as for what happens here on Sunday. Today we're going to be looking at John 16 as we come to the next to the last study of, of bacon and biscuits in the Bible. And uh, we're going to be looking at, at that chapter today and then next week uh, we'll finish up the series with, with chapter 17. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to teach your word, and I pray that you'll uh, guide me as I, as I share for my study, and I, I pray for clarity, and just ask, Lord, that the, the application you want for each of our hearts as a result of this study, that it will become obvious to us uh, in the minutes and hours ahead. Thank you for each of these who's come. And thank you for the delicious food we've eaten. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I imagine as the disciples were with Jesus first in the upper room, and we know from 1431 where Jesus says, Arise, let's get up and go from here, that Jesus transitioned out of the Lord, where the Lord's Supper was and the Passover meal was, somewhere else. The scripture doesn't tell us, but I think our pastor was on target last week when he suggested that they left downtown Jerusalem, wherever the supper was being held, and then moved down it towards the Kidron Valley on the east side of Jerusalem, headed towards the Mount of Olives, because he knew he was headed to the, to the Garden of Gethsemane. They didn't. But on that journey somewhere, he continued to teach. And I can imagine, as you and I are tempted sometimes in our dark and difficult moments or challenging moments where we don't know how we're going to make it through and, and accomplish what needs to be done, you can only imagine how the disciples were feeling at that moment as they walked along with Jesus. Life with Jesus living among them had been difficult enough. But to think of carrying on his work without him here, I can imagine, was very uh, disconcerting to them. Now, the outline that I want to follow in, in chapter 16 is, is pretty simple. Just comes straight from what he says to them. First four verses, you will be persecuted. He tells them. And then in verses uh, 5 to 15, you will receive the Holy Spirit. And then in 16 to 22, your weeping will be transformed into joy. And then in the last verses, 23 to 33, you will be able to ask of the Father and receive from Him. So let's look first of all at, at verses 1 through 4. Now, 
Verses 1 through 4 pick up where Jesus left off in chapter 15, verses 18 to 27. You may recall last week that Josh said that, that the, the, and, and I hope you understand that the chapters and verses are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. Human beings, scholars, put those in to make it easy to find parts of the Bible. They were added a long time afterwards, but I could not imagine trying to study the Bible without it. But anyway, the, the split in chapter 16 comes at an awkward moment. Uh, and, and because in verses 18 to 24 of, or, or 25 of, ch of chapter 15, Jesus talked about what their relationship with the world was going to be after he was gone and that, and that they should expect persecution. And then the last two verses, he talks about the Holy Spirit. And then he recaps verses 18 to 25 in verses 1 through 4, and then he goes and adds information that corresponds with 26 and 27 of chapter 15. So anyway, that I'm sure the scholars felt that it was safe to split there, and there's no big deal over it, but the theme continues. And so in verses, verse 1, it says, these things, and what Jesus is saying, all these things I've shared with you, in the upper room and on our journey to the Garden of Gethsemane, I've spoken to you that you may be kept from stumbling. Now, the translator handbook says that stumbling is a very strong word. Its basic meaning in this context is to entrap or entice to sin or to give up on one's faith. And so Jesus was knew that the trials and persecution that each of these disciples was going to face in their future would be such that they would be tempted to give up, to just throw in the towel and just say, if, if God was real, if Jesus was real, this couldn't possibly be happening. And so his goal in sharing with them the information that he shared is that they not be entrapped. And so he says, I've shared it with you so that you will be kept from stumbling, from being entrapped. Now, notice that that word kept from is a passive voice verb. That means the action that is happening is because of an outside force. And so Jesus is saying, you're going to be kept from stumbling by the words I've shared with you, but also as he's about to reveal because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit that's going to come to them. Verse 2, he says, they will make you outcasts from the synagogue. In other words, they would be excommunicated from the synagogue, which was the central place of activity in the community, not only religious instruction, but everything in a Jewish community revolved around the life of the synagogue. And so they would be put in financial uh, situations, stress, but they would also end this uh, stress and not being able to relate to the people in their community. And then he goes on, on to say, he says, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. So not only will they be excommunicated, they will potentially be executed. Now, 
that's quite a pep talk, isn't it? If you, if you were out recruiting somebody for a job and say, by the way, this is going to cause you to be outcast with all the people in, that you know and love, you're going to be put in financial distress and ultimately probably killed. I'm sure we would all line up really quickly to sign up for it. But that's what Jesus said. And he said, they will be so deluded in doing so, they will think that they were offering like a, a sacrifice to God, that they're doing it for God's sake. And uh, also, we know the religious leaders were probably doing it for brandy points with God and uh, uh, their thinking. And then in verse 3, he says, if I can get back to it, and these things they will do because they have not known the Father in me. So it's, it's out of not just ignorance, but it's out of willful choice not to be related uh, to him or to the Father. And what I find interesting about this is the fact that if there, if there was anybody on the face of the earth at that moment who believed that they were connected to God, it would be those religious leaders. But remember when Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And so they, these religious leaders were a bunch of Lord, Lord people, but they, none of them had a personal relationship with, with the Father through Jesus. And so in verse 4, he says, uh, these things I have spoken to you that when their hour comes, their hour to persecute you, even execute you. You may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. So Jesus is saying, I'm sharing all this with you now because in a, in a little while, I'm not going to be here with you. I'm not going to be here with you to guide you into truth. I'm not going to be here with you to, to give you moral guidance like I have for the last three years. And, uh, and so uh, he says, I'm, I'm just not going to be here to fend for you against your enemies. So you need to know all of this so that you'll be ready for it when it happens. Now in verses 5 through 15, we see where Jesus tells them, you will receive the Holy Spirit. This should not ha have been news to the disciples if they had been listening to Jesus from the beginning of the time there in the upper room. Now, we're going to look at them in just a moment, but in John 14, 16, and 17, he told them he was going to send the helper. In John 15, 20, 26, and 27, uh, or 25 and 26, nope, 26, 27, yeah. Um, Jesus said the same thing. And so he's been dropping hints, just like he's been saying on several occasions, I'm going away from you, but in a little while you'll see me again. He's now getting ready to tell them what he's been hinting at all along in regards to the Holy Spirit. When I first started seminary in August of 1974, one of my first classes that I took was uh, the Biblical Foundations for Missions. Dr. Jack Gray taught me, and the class and him became, as I look back on it, my, some of my favorites of the, all the time that I was there. Well, in starting Biblical Foundations for Missions, 
not gray, chose to teach on the Holy Spirit. And what I realized in that class is even though I'd grown up in, in RAs and, you know, little kids' uh, choirs and all that kind of stuff and youth group and even my college years in church across town, when I got to the seminary, I realized one of the things that I hadn't picked up on a lot on was the Holy Spirit. And so I, I appreciated the in-depth study. It took about six weeks, I think, as I recall, for us to cover what Scripture teaches about it. But Jesus, in this passage of Scripture, gives us some basic information about the role of the Holy Spirit when he would come. But just a, a, f a few general comments about the Holy Spirit before we get to the passages. First of all, he is a he and not an it. The Holy Spirit is a person, part of the Trinity. He is God. And so he's not this cloudy substance floating around the world. He is spirit, but he is also a person. And Scripture tells us we're to walk in him, worship in him, and witness in his power. So let's look at the, the passages in the Upper Room Discourse, starting in John 14, 16, and 17, if you'll turn back to that. Jesus has already told them, I'm, I'm going to go away and prepare a place for you, and your hearts need not to be troubled because of it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he's, he's gone on to share some other things. And then he says in 16, excuse me, I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Now, several things we learn about the Holy Spirit in that, those two verses. The Holy Spirit is a gift whom God gives to individual believers and to the church. Number two, he is another helper. Who would have been the original helper? Jesus, okay? He's another helper. Other translations for the word, the word helper are intercessor, consoler, advocate, comforter. He's the spirit of truth. That means his message and ministry are grounded in everything about life in the universe which conforms to the reality as God has defined reality. Best de definition of truth I've ever heard is that which conforms to reality. If it doesn't conform to reality, it's not truth, no matter how many people t tell you it is. And then four, he abides in individual believers' hearts. Therefore, understand this, it, it, it's just hit me as I was studying this. Jesus has just taught them about the importance of them abiding in him and his words in chapter 15. And now he says, as you abide in me, the Holy Spirit's going to abide in you. But if you don't abide in me, then the Holy Spirit, you're going to quench the Spirit and his work in your life. And so important, important teachings on the Holy Spirit. Now in chapter 15, verses 26 and 27, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, 
who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me, and you will bear witness of me because you've been with me from the beginning. So, so what this says is the ministry of the Holy Spirit centers around testifying about Christ. His role in the Trinity is to point people to Jesus and to draw them into a personal relationship with him. How? By promoting the name of Christ, testifying to the character of Christ, convicting them of their need for Christ, and sealing the covenant relationship once a person comes to Christ. That's the role of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness to Jesus, drawing people into a relationship as he bears testimony in those ways. So let's look at chapter 16, verses 5 through 15, as, as we find out even more about the Holy Spirit there. It says in verse 5 and 6, Now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? Now your, your first response, if you know the upper room discourse, well, didn't Thomas come close in John 14? Didn't Peter ask him in John 13 when Jesus said, I'm, I'm going to go away? He said, but you can't go with me. He says, uh, where are you going? Why can't we go with you? Well, the verb form here, the suggested explanation of that is the word ask is in such that it's right now. So he's saying, you know, I just said I'm going to him who sent me. But right now, none of you are asking. So he's going he's gonna to share. He said, but because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Jesus understands where they are after everything that he's been sharing with them in the upper room. So let's pick up at verse 7. He says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I don't go away, the helper shall not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Now I know they cannot imagine anything more being more of a greater disadvantage than not having Jesus with them. And here Jesus is saying, it's, you're going to be better off if I'm not here and I'm replaced by the Holy Spirit ministering to you. The best thing I can come up with on that one is that Jesus understood that because he was human and divine, he was limited to one space at a time. He, he couldn't be everywhere at one time, but the Holy Spirit could. And so that he, he was just simply saying, look, you don't understand it now, but you will. The Holy Spirit's going to be able to minister in each of your hearts at the same time, be everywhere all at the same time, and that will be better for you. And then he gives a reason why. He says, when, in verse 8, and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, Concerning sin, because they do not believe me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Now, this, in sharing this, Jesus shares with the disciples what would be one of the major works of the Holy Spirit 
here on earth. <clears throat> and what I would add to the characteristics or the functions that we've already looked at is, just like he is a comforter, these verses let us know that he's also a discomforter. He is a convictor. J. Vernon McGee, in his commentary on this passage, says the word convict in, in Greek was a legal term associated with the role of a prosecuting attorney to, to find evidence, sufficient evidence, to prove someone guilty in court. And so what the Holy Spirit, he's saying is, the Holy Spirit's function is to gather enough evidence in a person's life and in the world around them to convince, convict an individual that they are a sinner in need of a Savior, and then to, he would bear witness to them that Jesus is the Savior that they need. Now, in understanding verses 8 through 11, you have to realize that portions of verse 8 are paired with verses 9 through 11. For instance, the, the first word uh, that we see there is that the Holy, the Holy Spirit is to convict of sin. And then verse 9 explains concerning sin because they do not believe in me. What, one of the things, uh, by the way, as an aside, it dawned on me a few years back that if I'm praying for a lost person, there's no better place to begin the prayer than verse, verse 8 and 8 through 11. You pray for the Holy Spirit to convict that individual of his sin, of his unrighteousness, and his need for righteousness, and for the fact that judgment is coming. And just, just lay it before the Holy Spirit. If you ever are praying for someone, especially yourself, about spiritual renewal, no better prayer to pray And Lord. I know I'm your child, I know I'm saved, but Lord, convict me of the sin in my life, Convict me of the unrighteousness in my life. Convict, convict me of the fact that judgment day is coming when all I will be held accountable for everything that I do. So when it talks about convicting of sin, I think this occurs on two levels. First of all, the, the Holy Spirit gives evidence to the person of the, the cumulative impact of their sin is that they are a sinner separated from God. But the second, I think, part of it is the role of the Holy Spirit is to convict the person of the gravest sin of all, as it tells us there in verse 9, because they do not believe in me. And so part of our prayer needs to be, Lord, help them understand that if they do not believe in Jesus, that will be what will ultimately condemn them to hell, not the fact that they've done particular sins uh, than that. Then it says, convict them of, righte of righteousness. In verse 8, it says that. Then in verse 10, it gives the explanation. 
concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me. So what he was saying there was because he was no longer going to be on earth, the Holy Spirit would take the lead in convincing people of the need to be made right with God and once made right with God to live rightly until they got to heaven. Then verse 8, it talks about convict of judgment. Verse 11, the explanation, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. What he's saying there is unbelievers need to be convinced and convicted of the fact that just as Satan has been judged and condemned to hell, that anyone who fails to trust Jesus in this life will be judged and condemned to hell as well. Now, verse 12 says, Jesus read the room, although they might have been on a pathway in darkness, I don't know. He says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them. Jesus realized that they had heard about as much as they could handle. It reminded me of the time when I was preaching up in Landrum when I was pastor at First Baptist. And towards the end of one of my sermons, I said, um, I have a lot more I can say about that, but I won't say it. And one of the moms of a little boy at elementary age school said, when I said that out loud, he said, good. <laughs> well, that's where the point he was, Jesus understood that the disciples were. That if he was to unload any more on them, of the heavy stuff that they would not be able to bear it. So, but also look, that also gives explanation to verse 6, where he said, sorrow has, has filled your heart. Uh, and one of the commentaries I was looking at said that the, the word has filled is a past perfect tense in the Greek language meaning that it happened in the past, but it has continuous implications in the present and future, ongoing. And so they concluded from that that Jesus sensed that a spirit of gloom had settled over them. And with that added to, as he read the room, that they were not able to bear anymore, uh, Jesus moves on to, to give some very positive things. So he goes on in, in verse 13 to say, when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will disclose to you what is to come. The spirit would be a guide to truth by disclosing things from the Father. Now, I want to share a specific application about the disciples at this point. The, whole, the role of the Holy Spirit, part of it, would be to remind them of all that Jesus had said. You know, I, as I think about, for instance, this, how in the world? John wasn't taking notes. How did he reproduce this upper room discourse? from his memory years later, maybe 30 years later. Well, the scripture says, Jesus said the Holy Spirit would remind them of truth, of all truth. And so the, the role of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the disciples 
was that to, to remind them of the truth Jesus taught, to help them understand what it mean, meant so they could transfer it to the next generation of believers who made up the original church. And then, for some of them, like John, so that and Matthew and Peter in the ear of Mark when he wrote his, and probably all of them when Luke gathered his information and wrote his, so that they could write it down to become gospels and some of them writing the epistles in the New Testament so that you and I could read it today and understand it today. That is a significant role that the Holy Spirit would play. And then he adds in 14, he shall glorify me. He shall bring honor and praise to me with the work that he does. He shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. All things that the, fa the Father has are mine. It's what, it, what it is mine is yours and what's yours is mine. Relationship between the Father and the Son. And he said, therefore, I said, he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Now, the next section, verses 16 through 22, Jesus says, your weeping will be transformed into joy. You can imagine how sad and perplexed the disciples were when they, at that moment. Now, Jesus is going to add to their sorrow and perplexity and verses 16 through 19. And then he's going to share with them how their sorrow will be turned to joy ultimately. I want to talk about two words before we get into the passage. The first word is joy. Putting together ideas from several study Bibles and commentators, let me define biblical joy. Joy is a delight of heart, mind, and soul which is able to rise above the circumstances of life. The ability to rise above the circumstances of life comes from a person's faith and the sovereignty of God whose character and power are such that he both makes and keeps promises that sustain us and encourage us. Additionally, his character and power enable him to work all things for our ultimate good if we love him and called according to his purpose. So the, the source of joy in the midst of heartache is the confidence we have in God's character, that he is a God of love, he is a God of, of, of kindness, he is in control, he's, he is concerned, all those character traits, but also in his power to deliver on the promises that he's made to us in Scripture. Now, the second word I want us to look at is the word transformation, because we're talking about turning our sorrow into joy. The concept is transformation of your sorrow into joy. Warren Wiersbe is helpful with that when he says that to deal with sorrow or pain, we can either try to substitute something in its place or we can allow the Holy Spirit of God using the truth of God to transform our actual sorrow or pain into joy. 
Jesus is proposing the second approach. Not to go out and find something that we'll put our sorrow over here, but we'll let that make us joyful for the time being. But to actually take the sorrowful event in our life and then transform it into joy. So picking up there in verse 16, Jesus says, a little while and you will no longer behold me. And again, a little while, you know, we'll see. He's, he's told them that, but once again, he drops that into the conversation, but with no explanation as to when the little while is going to be and what the little while is going to contain, and then when the next little while is going to be and what it's going to contain. Now, you, you and I would do the same thing as disciples, 17 and 18. They look at each other and say, what in the world is he talking about? And Jesus, verse 19, perceives that. He, he says, are you deliberating together about this, that I said a little while and you will not behold me, and again a little while you will? So in verse 20 to 22, he addresses their question, but he doesn't answer it. And that, <laughs> I'm sure that was frustrating to them. In verse 20, uh, Jesus says, truly, truly, and uh, I love that word, truly, truly. I, it means for sure, for sure. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will sorrow, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. So, so without telling them what's going to happen, he says, there is an an undisclosed event that's going to happen. It's going to break your hearts. But at the same time, they, meaning the world, all those people out there who were opposed to Jesus and what he was wanting to do, said they will rejoice. But hang on, guys. It's not going to be long till something's going to happen that's going to transform your sorrow into joy. Now, in verse 21, he gives an illustration that I can understand vicariously by being in the labor and delivery area with Lynn at the birth of our two girls. I observed it, but I haven't experienced it, which I'm sure doesn't surprise any of you. Let's read 21. Whenever a woman is in travail, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she remembers the anguish no more for the joy that a child has been born into the world. You ladies who've given birth, I'm sure you can relate to that. It, it was a beautiful moment for me as a father of those two little babies, girls, to see that the pain and suffering that Lynn went through for that time of labor, but to see the joy in her face when that baby was laid on her breasts and into her arms. And I love what Warren Wiersbe says to give us the point. That same baby that caused the pain also caused the joy. And that's what Jesus is trying to say that which causes you pain 
They don't know it yet. My crucifixion will also be the source of your joy, which would be the resurrection. Now in verse 22, he adds, Therefore you too now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your sorrow will rejoice, and no one can take away that sorrow. Now, he wraps up chapter 16 with a promise that they would be able, and of course we would as well, to ask God and receive from him. Now in verses 23 to 28, I believe that Jesus is identifying the ability to pray and ask of God in his name and God give it to him as a part of the way that sorrow could be turned into joy. They were, their sorrow, our sorrow, will be turned into joy as they lived in faith, knowing confidently that when they pray, they would, as David Mathis says in Disciplines of Grace, they would have God's ear. That is one of the best word pictures of what prayer is that I've ever heard. That when we pray, not only do we hear from God, but when we speak, we have God's ear. And, and so he goes and he says, verse 23, in that day, in that day following my resurrection, following my ascension, you will ask me no question. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you shall ask the Father for anything, he will give it to you in my name. Now, in verse 23, and then let's read 24. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy uh, may be made full. And so Jesus is saying the day is coming that you will go directly to the Father with your prayer. While I've been here on earth, you've been asking things of me, but when I get to heaven, you won't ask things from me. You will ask things in my name, and the Father will give it to you because you're our child. And so uh, as, as we get in there, he's saying no longer would they ask him directly because he won't be with them. From then on, they would ask directly to the Father. And then it says, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. And then uh, in verse 24, it says, ask and you shall receive. Now, obviously, these, those are two phrases that we have to be careful how we understand them if not, we can go down a rabbit trail that's unhealthy. So the key to understanding is the phrase, in my name. Does Jesus, is Jesus saying that prayer is like uh, a vending machine? That you stick in my name in the money slot, press C3, and it comes popping out the bottom? Is Jesus saying... Prayer is a name it and claim it. As long as you add in my name to the end of the prayer, then we should expect to receive it. So what did he mean by that phrase? Well, the key to unlocking it, I think, is to, is to understand, especially in Jesus' culture, but even in our own, 
that a person's name did more than separate their identity from somebody else. You know, when you say, That's, that was Jerry Long who did that, that doesn't mean Jerry Long did it and not some other person, Josh Powell or Kevin Batson or Jeremy Thompson. I mean, we immediately know that. But, but when we hear a name, everything that that name represents, character, attitudes, actions, looks, all of that is wrapped up in a name. And so all of that is wrapped up in the name of Jesus as well when we pray in his name. So for my study, I'm going to give you five, it looks like, things that it means to pray in Jesus' name. Real quickly. It means coming to God in the authority of Jesus rather than trying to gain God's ear and our own authority, which, by the way, carries absolutely no weight in the throne room of God. We can say to the Father when we go into his throne room in prayer, Jesus said, I could come here and talk to you. Number two, it means coming to God as one who is identified with Jesus by faith. In other words, a saved person. Number three, it means coming to God on the basis of Jesus' merit and not on the basis of our own, which we have none. It means coming to God in a manner consistent with the character and will of Jesus. It means, ultimately, I think, to ask God for something as if Jesus himself were the one asking for it. So, why did Jesus make these promises about prayer? That your joy may be made full. Verse 25, these things I have spoken to you in a figurative language, and hours coming when I will speak no more to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly of the Father. Now, that's going to occur a few verses down, but sometime when you have a chance, read the last half of Luke 24, starting with Jesus encountering the two men on the road to Emmaus. Because several times in 25 to 27, 44 to 48, it talks about Jesus explaining to them, using the prophets and the Psalms and, and the law, explaining to them thoroughly everything there was to know about him and the truth. So if you're wondering where they got to know all of that besides walking with him day to day, at, in the, at the end, Jesus spent time telling them all about it. Okay, in verses 26, 28, In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you love me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. What Jesus is saying there, he says, when I get back to heaven and I'm sitting at the right hand of God, you're not going to pray to me and then me turn to the Father and say, by the way, Jerry just talked to me and said, would you ask the Father if he would do something on his behalf? He said, no, you're going to ask it directly of the Father. I'm going to be there in support, but you're asking directly uh, 
to the Father, and that's much of what's going on there. Now, it's, it's interesting disciples say, well, you know, you've been talking in figures of speech, but for some reason that made sense to us. And so they uh, applaud him. Now, it wraps up 30 to 33. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. You remember how many times Jesus, working with his disciples when they didn't catch something, they didn't understand it, they misunderstood it. He said, how long must I be with you before you understand? I think at this moment he would say, I can't believe I've been with you this long and it took you this long to understand that. That I am from the Father and that I, I came from him. Well, Jesus asked an interesting question. Here they have just declared a significant faith statement in their beliefs about God. And he asked them, he says, do you really believe it? And then he says to them, 32, behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Jesus was talking about soon they were going to the Garden of Gethsemane. Soon he would finish praying. Soon they would go out and be greeted by Judas and the soldiers and religious leaders. And the crucifixion would be not far away. And they would scatter. Now you can only imagine how they felt at that moment. And, and listen to what what Jesus adds, verse 33. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you may have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Peace that Jesus offers is not the absence of turmoil, obviously, because he predicts tribulation for them. Peace is contentment. Peace is a settled and calm spirit, mind, and heart in the midst of life storms because of what Jesus does for us. As the ESV study Bible describes it, a sense of all is well in spite of the fact that all is not well from a human standpoint. Let me summarize what we talked about today. Whereas life has its trials, tribulations, and heartaches, and even for some, persecution, we do not face them alone. Because the Holy Spirit dwells within us, that means, as a friend of mine says, God is as close as breathing. At every moment of every day, providing through the Holy Spirit a ministry of comfort, teaching, guidance, and yes, even conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Because of the authority of Jesus, we have the privilege of entering God's throne room with the confidence that when we pray, we will have God's ear and he will give us what we ask for in Jesus' name. Thus, the presence of God's spirit within us and the promise of being heard by God combine to transform our sorrow into joy and to give us peace, even in the midst of life's 
greatest difficulties. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your presence here through the Holy Spirit. And I pray that what I've shared is not only clear but accurate. And if some of it is not accurate, I pray that these folks will forget it before they hit the door. Lord, use this in our lives in those moments of sorrow to transform those moments of sorrow into joy. And we thank you for what you've done to make that happen. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the discourse part of the upper room discourse is complete. But Jesus is not through. And John 17 contains an incredible prayer that he prayed to the Father in the presence of those disciples. Some call, call it the high priestly prayer. I like to call it Jesus, the Lord's real prayer, or the real Lord's prayer. Because the first Lord's prayer is a model prayer. This is actually his prayer. So with that to chew on, have a great day. See you Sunday at what time? 10 o'clock after having not going, gone to life group.